I know you know that there is a baptism service this Friday in between our two Good Friday services, but I just want to tell you, this is, if you've not been baptized, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've not obeyed the command to be baptized, it's really an easy command. It's like believe and be baptized. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've not been baptized, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor John. We'll get you baptized this Friday. And if you're too scared to talk to the pastors, then just fill out a connection card and put your name on there and put that you want to be baptized this Friday and we'll be ready to roll. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. And when we come to this time of the year, you're going to be going through a familiar passage whether you've grown up in church or not. You've perhaps heard the passage of Jesus Christ and his passion, his suffering and death on the cross. And so when you come to the familiar time, you may kind of just fly by it because you've heard it before. But we're going to pause this morning and make this a longer meditation leading up to communion, a longer meditation leading up to the Lord's Supper where we will will celebrate his death for us. But this morning as we go to this passage, it really is going to be a true depiction of the gospel, a true depiction of the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's kind of some phrases I want to be ringing in your head throughout this morning. And so I'm going to kind of throw up a quote for you, and then we'll hit it around throughout the rest of the passage. Let me put this this quote by uh, Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York. He says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. Today, we're going to like plunge deep in the depravity of humanity, but we're also going to lift up and exalt our Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us, his love for sinners, because the reality is Jesus died in the place of sinners. This past week was spring break for my kids, and so I typically take that off. And so as I was hanging out with my kids, I took my 12-year-old daughter to go see the movie Hunger Games. I've not read the book. You may read that book? Some of you have read that book. So I, I'm walking in, and I don't know what's up with this movie. And I just want to say, it is a disturbing movie. <laughs> On the proportion of the book of Judges in the Bible. If you're disturbed by the book of Judges, you'll be disturbed by the Hunger Games. So I'm watching this movie, and I don't want to give it away for those of you who, who don't know the storyline. But at the beginning, the concept is basically the kids, for a variety of reasons, have to go and fight and kill each other. It's like terrible. But they're picked from different districts. They can't really volunteer. they got to go, and they gotta, they got to fight. And in this one district, by the way, you get picked if you're ages 12 through 18, just filling in all the details. Ages 12 to 18. And in this one district, this 12-year-old girl, cute, little, precious 12-year-old girl, gets picked to go and fight in the Hunger Games. And she is terrified. It means her, her certain death. But... If you've seen the movie, read the book, you know that her, her big sister jumps in, volunteers to go and fight and perhaps die in her place. It's a, it's a sacrificial move. And I, when I was watching that, I was thinking, aha, Romans chapter 5, verse 7. Let me put this up there. I can't just watch a movie. I'm a preacher. Romans 5, 7. This is what the girl did. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare 
even to die. So the girl did Romans 5, 7. She died for her, or put her life out there, for her cute, little, precious sister. But what Christ did was Romans 5, 8. Let's put that up. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the gospel message is that Christ died for sinners. Now, what you may think is that Jesus, he loved you so much because you're cute and you're precious and you were so sweet. And so he decided, oh, they're so cute. I am going to die in their place. Not at all. When we were against him as sinners, adamantly opposed to him, it's at that point that he came to die for sinners. And maybe we don't feel that way sometimes. We think we're, we're pretty good. But the reality is, is that we're worse off in the depth of our depravity than we think. And as we march through this passage this morning, we're going to see group after group after group opposed to Jesus, and we're to see ourselves in that group as well. And it's at that point that his love extends beyond what we can imagine, and he dies for us. So let's start off by looking at Jesus' executioners. Let's start in verse 27. The trial's over. It's time for the punishment of the executioners. Thus the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They're in secret. They're not in the view of the Jews. You don't do this around Jews. You don't strip someone naked and beat them in front of the Jews. It wouldn't be appropriate for them to see. So let's put it in secret in kind of the Roman area where the Jews can't see. Verse 28. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Perhaps it's like an old faded Roman jacket to show his royalty. They're, they're mocking him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, like for a king, they put it on his head and and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him so that they have this mock enthronement with this make-believe reed and crown and robe, and they're spitting on him, beating him, and mocking him. And, And little do they know that the irony here, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. And one day, willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow to him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But in this instance, they are physically beating him, torturing him. And though you and I did not do these things physically, we are just as sinful. We are more sinful than we ever dare to believe. The reality is, as Christians, we are sanctified in the sense we are viewed holy and made righteous in his eyes, we are the righteous ones that still sin. And the depth of our depravity is, is pretty great. A few weeks ago, my, my teenage son and I were debating in the car about who was the most sinful. I was telling him some things. I said, I am, I am just, I am so sinful. 
And he looked at me like, how can you be sinful after being a Christian for so many years? He goes, I'm the one who's sinful. I'm like, no, no, no. And so we're debating and arguing. And, and then I started sharing with him some of the things that I, I struggle with. And I said, look, ma'am, I said, I have been journaling for, since I've become a Christian, I became a Christian at 19, so I've been journaling over 20 years. And, and I said, when I die, I want you to read my journals, not before I die, <laughs> but when I die, I want you to read my journals and see the things I struggled with. And he said to me, where are they at? And I said, I said, they, they're scattered throughout the house. And when you go through all my junk when I'm dead, you will find them. And as you read them, you will see the struggle and my fight against sin. And, and as we're believers, we all still deal with stuff. And I really think that we're more sinful than we, we ever thought was possible. And yet the king is still headed to the cross. Because he is more loving and compassionate and kind than we ever dared hope. Let's watch him keep going to the cross. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, typically, prisoners would carry their own cross. And you go, well, why is that? What's well, like digging your own grave? It de debilitates them mentally and morally and just emotionally. You're like digging your own grave. Carry your cross. But Jesus has been beaten so much, he can't carry his cross. And so there's a guy named Simon brought in to carry his cross. Now, the question you need to ask is, where are his disciples? Jesus told his disciples, you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And, and here is a great literal opportunity. They get to take up the cross of Jesus and help him carry it. But they're, they're nowhere to be found. Why? Because even the disciples are more sinful than they ever dared, imagined, or believed. They, would, they thought they would be with Jesus till his death. But where are they? Nowhere to be found. Verse 33. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted, he would not drink it. And this place of a skull is a very appropriate name. If you've ever been in Israel, there's actually a place that looks like a skull. He probably wasn't crucified there. He's probably crucified at another location. But it, wherever it's at, it's a, it's a place of great pain and suffering as prisoners would come to be killed on a cross. And so they offer Jesus a, probably a form of a narcotic. They're like, here, take this narcotic. Maybe it won't hurt as bad or maybe you'll be out of it. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to feel this suffering I'm going to feel the full extent of the wrath of God, and I am not going to be drugged up for it. So he refuses the narcotic. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, for those of you who are doctors, maybe you've, you've read things before about the crucifixion. And, and there's some things that, that I don't understand about the crucifixion because I don't understand much about the body. But I thought if you took nails and you drive them into my hands and into my feet, I would think I would bleed out. Like, immediately. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be done. But most of the, the, the prisoners here who are crucified, from my understanding, they're not bleeding out. That's not the main way they're dying. 
They're hoisted up on the cross, and the issue is their arms are above their head, and they're having trouble breathing. And so they have to do a little pull-up motion to catch some breaths. And so after a while, they're too tired to pull themselves up, and eventually they suffocate. And that's how they would end up dying. So Jesus is on the cross. He's bleeding. He's having a hard time breathing. He's probably pulling up to breathe. And you think, that is as bad as it gets for me. But on the ground, people are messing with him. People are making fun of him. People are caught up in triviality. For starters, the first group I want us to look at is the soldiers. They're gambling for his, his meager possessions. And they're just playing these little games of casting lots. Hey, I want that. Hey, I want that. And what's interesting is that what they're doing with Jesus' clothes is prophesied in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 22. The book, uh, the Psalm 22 constantly has these allusions to the cross of Christ. And I'm going to put some up for you this morning to know that none of these things that are happening to Jesus are outside of God's sovereign control. So Psalm 22, verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And in this passage in Psalm 22, it's a depiction of a righteous and innocent sufferer in Jesus Christ is the ultimate righteous and innocent sufferer. So, so follow along with me. So far, we have the Roman guards caught up in triviality playing with Jesus close. So that's the first group. Now, the second group is the crowds. Look at verse, no, verse 36. It says, Then they sat down, still with the, the soldiers, and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. Okay, so check it out. You put the charge on top of the cross. Whatever the wrongdoing is, if someone's a robber or a thief, put it up there. For him, they put king of the Jews up there just to quell any future rebellion. You want to be a king? You're going to be killed. You want to rebel against Rome? We're going to put you on a cross. And so the, the soldiers are there. Now, check it out. It says that they are, you see in verse 36, then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Now, it's not like the soldiers are just watching him. The idea is they're guarding him. Their job is to make sure that Jesus dies on the cross and that nobody comes and tries to take him down. So the soldiers need to protect Jesus from coming off the cross so that the, you know, his disciples won't come and steal him. You should be laughing now. They're guarding Jesus so the disciples don't come and steal him. Where are the disciples? Oh, they took off a long time ago. They're no threat. Did you, do you remember James and John? Remember that? They said, Jesus, we want to be on your right hand and on your left hand and, and reigning in authority when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus is like, you guys are crazy. You don't know what you're asking for. He says, can you drink what I'm going to drink, the suffering I'm about to drink? And they said, oh, Jesus, we're going to go with you all the way. We will die. Who is on Jesus' right hand and left hand now? Robber, thief, his disciples have all bailed. And you may wonder, well, would we have done the same? We are more sinful than we ever imagined. We would have done the same. 
But Jesus is still hanging on the cross because he is more loving than we've ever dared hope. So we see the guards. We see what the game they're playing. Once again, look at the public. They come to pile it on. Verse 39. These are people that probably don't even know him. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Once again, an echo of Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. So the public is just shaking their head. But once again, you know the irony. He said, destroy this temple. He was talking about his body. Not the temple, his body. And in three days, he will rise again. So you have the Roman guards mocking him, triviality. You have the public saying, come on down, man. And now you have the religious leaders. The religious leaders that should have been waiting for the Messiah all along. Look what the religious leaders are doing. Look at verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Once again, obvious connections to Psalm 22, to the innocent sufferer. Psalm 22, 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're like, Jesus, you saved other people, but you can't even take care of saving yourself. Irony, if he chose to save himself, he would not save others. So because he chooses not to save himself, salvation comes to other people. So look at this. Roman soldiers caught up in triviality mocking him. Crowds mocking him. Religious leaders of all people going off on him. Now you would think that the robbers on his left and on his right, surely they will leave him alone. Nope. Verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. (laughs) I mean, later, of course, one's going to be saved, but now it seems like The whole world is against Jesus. Soldiers are against Jesus. The public is against Jesus. The religious leaders are against Jesus. The people on the cross are against Jesus. His disciples have bailed on him. It seems at this moment, while Jesus is on the cross, the whole world is against him. He's not dying on the cross for sweet, lovable, innocent people. He's dying on the cross for sinners. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that bad people like you and me, we get forgiveness through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's the way I heard it said recently. This may be the way that you heard it growing up in your church. This may be the way you've heard it growing up in your neighborhood from your family. It goes something like this. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. So just be a good little boy and a good little girl 
and you're going to get good things. But if you're bad, and if you're naughty, you're going to get bad things. Here is the heart of the gospel. Bad people get the best things. That's the heart of the gospel. Bad, wretched, messed up, rebellious sinners get the best thing, forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And it won't be good news to you if you're a good person, if you're a nice, little, innocent, non-sinful person. It's not going to be good news to you. But it's good news when we say, you know what? I am separated from, from God. I am in sin. I have rebelled against him. But there is good news. Wicked me gets forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. Bad people get the best things. That's the heart of the gospel. So if we've been tracking so far, we've seen a lot of people against Jesus, the guards, the public, the religious leaders, those on the cross are against him. His disciples have bailed on him. So it looks like the whole world is against Jesus. If I was on the cross, it, to me, it couldn't get worse than that. Can you think of it getting worse for you? The whole world is against you. Everybody is mocking with you. Everybody is against you. No one is on your side, it seems, that right now at this point. So can it possibly get worse than the whole world being against you? Yeah. God is against him. What's worse, having the world against you? Having God against you. One step further, God is against him. Let's see it here. Let's see the wrath of God. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. So he's been on the cross since nine in the morning or the third hour. And the sixth hour is noon and the ninth hour is three. So check it out. From noon to three, you have this supernatural darkness over the land. You're like, Why is it dark? Why is it dark for well, it's, 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 a, it's symbolic of God's wrath. You go, well, how do you know that? Well, look at the next verse, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So right now, at this point, the cup of God's wrath, full force on Jesus on the cross Jesus is bearing the wrath of God for our sin. This is the full extent right here of the atonement. You've heard that word before, atonement. Jesus is atoning for our sins. He's in the place of sinners. And right now, he is feeling the departure of his father. R.T. France has expressed it like this. He said that this shout of Jesus expresses not a loss of faith, but a temporary loss of contact. As the atonement is in full effect, Jesus is turning away the wrath of the Father for sinners. And as the famous John Stott has said, our sins blotted out the sunshine of the Father's face. If you take away the concept of wrath, then you miss the cross. If you think Jesus is just providing a nice little example for us, if you think he's just on the cross taking care of Satan and somehow taking care of sin, if you take away the wrath of God, you have missed the cross. 
The Father's wrath is being poured out on Jesus instead of sinners who have faith in him. Do you see as the full extent of the cross? Someone on the ground hears Jesus crying out to his father, and there was this, this thought around the time that if you ever get into trouble, just call out to Elijah, and Elijah the prophet will come and rescue you. And so some had this superstitious thought. Verse 47. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, hey, this man's calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So they're mocking. Let's give him something to drink. No, 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 let's wait. Let's wait and see. Let's let him get so close to death, but don't kill him yet. And let's see if Elijah really comes to rescue him. Just, they're just pouring it on. Pouring it on. And finally, Jesus dies. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Maybe the last words here are, it is finished, or Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But Jesus is now dead. Now what I'm about to read to you, maybe you've not read before. You've heard about Jesus dying on the cross, but the things I'm about to read to you Maybe you've just been totally foreign to you. And some of it is actually going to sound rather, rather odd because it's only in the book of Matthew. We're going to see three things. We're going to see an earthquake happen at the death of Jesus, supernatural. We're going to see a tearing of a curtain, supernatural. But then we're going to see, this is going to be the hardest part, dead people come up out of their graves and walk around Jerusalem and greet living people. That would trip me out if I saw that, all right? Yes. So this is going to be like, whoa, what's going on here? Well, let, let's look at the different portions of what's going to happen to show this is no ordinary death. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. So you have this violent earthquake. And then accompanying this was a tear in the curtain of the temple. Now, this is probably the curtain is talking about. Now, p- picture this if you can. Like back in the temple was the most holy place, uh, you know, the Holy of Holies. And t- t- only behind this really huge curtain could you go into the Holy of Holies if you were the high priest, and they could only go in once a year. So average people like you, the average Israelites, could not go in there at all. And it represented the presence of God. And it was a huge curtain. Now, at the death of Jesus, this curtain was torn, but not from the bottom up. It was torn from the top down. And it was a symbolic tear to show that now, through the death of Jesus, average people like you and me, average sinners, can now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can run into the presence of God and be accepted by a holy God through the finished work of Christ. And we have this interpretation given to us in the book of Hebrews. Let me read this to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, let us draw near to God. So through his body connected with the curtain. Since it was broken, the curtain has been torn. Through faith in Christ, we can have access to a holy God. It's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. But now we get into the bodies coming up from the graves. Look at verse 52. The tombs also were opened, 
And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So this earthquake happens and bodies, uh, the, the graves are broken, but it seems like three days later, they come up out of him. And it says saints of old. And I don't know who they are, but can you imagine? Perhaps it was King David or, or Jeremiah, the prophet, or, or, or the great Joseph from the book of Genesis. So the, the tombs are open, the bodies come out, and they start walking around the city greeting people. Can you imagine living then and, like, meeting King David? That's amazing. And I, I have a lot of questions when I read this. I mean, I, I believe it happened because there's supernatural events all over the Bible. So I believe it happened, but I have some questions. My first question would be, like, where did the people go after that? Did they get back in the, the grave? Did they uh, ascend with Jesus? And I, I don't know the answer to that. But the next question I would, I'd ask is, what does this mean? And I think we can answer that by saying it's a foretaste. It's, it's a coming future for us who believe in Jesus Christ. When we die, our, our souls, if we have faith in Jesus, our souls will go to heaven and be with the Father. But when Christ comes back, and at the resurrection of believers, our souls and bodies will be joined together. So it's a, I think it's a foretaste of a future resurrection that the death of Christ has conquered death. You want proof? Here's people coming out of their graves. That does not happen. This was no ordinary death. There is now a new life and a resurrection for those who have faith in Christ. Well, let's finish up here with a proclamation. By, what, by some of the pagans around the cross. Let's finish up here. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. These men have been there at the beating of Jesus. They've been there with the supernatural darkness. They saw him crying out on the cross. They, they, they saw him die, and then the earthquake happened. And they say, surely it was the Son of God. It's interesting that throughout the Gospels, people don't know who Jesus is. The religious leaders get it wrong. The disciples are bumbling. But finally, at his death, some of these pagans finally nail it. Now, we don't know all that they understood. I mean, they're pagans. Remember, they thought, this is one of the sons of the gods. We don't know. But we know, as believers, that this is the Son of God dying in the place of sinners. We know this is the one who loves us. If I tell you that God loves you, it probably doesn't have much force to you. Because if you have grown up and you've, you've heard that God loves you. And so for me as a pastor to tell you, again, that God loves you, it, it doesn't have much force. And it should, but it, it, it doesn't. So I'm going to try to think of a way to tell you that he loves you and express it to you in a way that you feel it. And so a couple weeks ago I was reading something and I found this little phrase and I'm going to share it with you. And hopefully you'll feel more the love of God. It goes like this. God loves us something Fierce. God loves us something fierce. Maybe you never heard it that way before. Maybe you need a definition of fierce. Let me give you a definition of fierce. Here's a definition of fierce. Having or displaying 
an intense or ferocious aggressiveness, showing a heartfelt intensity, powerful and destructive in extent. God loves us something fierce. If you want a ferocious aggressiveness, destructive in extent, look at the cross. To think that God has been so aggressive in getting you into a relationship with him that he would forcefully send his son to be murdered on the cross and to bear the wrath of God in your place. God loves you something fierce. And if you want to describe your conversion experience, the time where you put your faith in Jesus Christ, some of you would say, God came after me in a fierce kind of way. Now, that's what I would say. Oh, my. Oh, my. I was, I was into so much sin and, and rebellion and immorality. I mean, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. And he came after me something fierce and brought me to brokenness and repentance. And, and I put my faith in him. And, and, and I have a feeling if some of you are not following Christ right now, there may come a time soon, maybe right now, where God is coming after you something fierce. He has a fierce kind of love for you to such an extent that he would send his son to die in your place so that he can reconcile you to him. How aggressive and ferocious is that kind of love? Now we know what happens next. We know that he's buried. We know that he's there for three days. And we know he rises from the grave. But let's wait on that. And linger at the cross, the fierce love of God for you. And the way we're going to linger is we're going to go into a time of taking the Last Supper together, communion, the Lord's Supper together, where we remember the fierce love of God for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. 24 hours earlier, they were having this meal together with his disciples, and Jesus reinterpreted the Passover meal and said, things are going to change here. He passed them bread, and it says in Matthew 26, 26, it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. It's symbolic of what's about to happen to him on the cross and the benefits we get through his death in our forgiveness. And then he took the cup in Matthew 26, 27 and 28. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Talking about the destruction that was about to happen to Jesus, we're talking about a death here. God fierce extent and love is shown in Jesus' blood being poured out and his body broken. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful reminder of the gospel. And once again, I want to hit the gospel one last time and put up a quote by Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed than ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If you are a repentant sinner, if you are one that says, it's me, I'm a sinner, and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can take this meal with us today. You don't have to be a member of this church. You just have to be one who's acknowledged that you're a sinner, you need forgiveness in Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, and now you're going to take this meal that reminds you of God's fierce love for you in the cross of Christ.
And what we do, we, we have this cup and we, we dip bread in it and then we eat it and it reminds us of what he's done for us and we're proclaiming his death until he comes again. That's the way we do it here. And when people start getting up, if you're new here, you can just follow what they're doing. Just get in line and they'll show you which way to go. Just, it's simple. But if you're new here, you may, you, you, you may, there's something else we need to explain because there's something else we do unique at our church that, that you, you definitely need explanation for. Connected with the communion, we do something else called prayer and healing. We believe that God still heals. Like 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking around this earth, he prayed for people and they were healed. We believe under his sovereignty, under his decision, under his control, God still heals today. And so what we do connect it with communion. Now, we can pray for you anytime, but we have elders that will be available with oil to anoint you and pray for your healing. Now, some of you may have grown up in some interesting traditions where you have some, some funny business going on with the oil. So I don't want you to get too confused on this oil thing. We're not, we're, this is not some magic potion stuff, okay? It's, it's not like holy oil that we've somehow blessed and it's transformed and you give me some of that oil. No, not what we're talking about. This is symbolic of the blessing of God, of his power, of his grace, of his love. And so we're going to anoint you and pray the prayer of faith, if you're sick, to be healed. But let's say you're not sick, but you've got a messed up marriage. Are you going to get some messed up kids? Are, are things are hard for you now at school or in life? Or you just need prayer? We encourage you to come up to the elders and, and we'll pray for you. Pray for God to intervene in your life, to offer much grace. And we're just throwing up our, our lives to him. And this is in the Bible. Let me read this passage to you. That's what we base this on. It's in James 5. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And we can do this anytime. And let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So connected with this praying for wellness and maybe for some problems you have, you, is the concept of forgiveness of sins. Maybe, maybe you're in some sin right now, and there are effects in your life, and you need to repent of that sin. There is great love for you in Jesus he loves you far more than you imagined. And you can repent and put your faith in him and find forgiveness of him this morning. God loves you something fierce. And as we come to this communion table, we want to kind of come slowly this morning. We don't want to rush this morning. Uh, so we're going to just kind of pause where we're at, think about God's fierce love for us, and we some areas we need to repent, receive some forgiveness. And when the music starts playing, then you can get up and, and, and take communion. So let's just pause and go to this time of prayer.